0: This is a technical book that was published in 1903 by D. Appleton and Company. It was written by George Jack and provides a guide for anyone to become an expert in wood carving. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest I want to help people doze off so that they can have a productive day and achieve whatever it is they set out to do. I read a different story every episode to help you get a good night's rest. It is designed to play in the background as you slowly fall asleep. Every episode tells a different story and you're welcome to listen to whichever one works for you. Special thank you to iTunes listeners JBNNYC, CM, Soph C. Short, Birdie Lady and Leesy Cat for your kind words, and also to Michaela and Sue for your kind words through the com website. I'm thrilled to know that the podcast is helping you get a good night's rest. My goal with this podcast is to help everywhere get a good night's sleep, but I do need your help to do this. Please jump into iTunes or your podcast player of choice. Subscribe and leave a review. You would be surprised at how helpful this is. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. Wood Carving Design and Workmanship by George Jack. Editor's Preface In issuing these volumes of a series of handbooks on the artistic crafts, it will be well to state what are our general aims. In the first place, we wish to provide trustworthy textbooks of workshop practice from the points of view of experts who have critically examined the methods current in the shops and putting aside vain survivals are prepared to say what is good workmanship and to set up a standard of quality in the crafts which are more especially associated with design. Secondly, in doing this, we hope to treat design itself as an essential part of good workmanship. During the last century, most of the arts, save painting and sculpture of an academic kind, were little considered and there was a tendency to look on design as a mere matter of appearance. Such ornamentation as there was, was usually obtained by following in a mechanical way a drawing provided by an artist who often knew little of the technical process involved in production. With the critical attention Given to the crafts by Ruskin and Morris, it came to be seen that it was impossible to detach design from craft in this way, and that in the widest sense, true design is an inseparable element of good quality involving, as it does, the selection of good and suitable material, contrivance for special purpose, expert workmanship, proper finish, and so on, far more than mere ornament. And indeed, that ornamentation itself was rather an exuberance of fine workmanship, than a matter of merely abstract lines. Workmanship, when separated by too wide a gulf from fresh thought, that is, from design, inevitably decays and, on the other hand, ornamentation divorced from workmanship, is necessarily unreal and quickly falls into affection. Proper ornamentation may be defined as a language addressed to the eye. It is pleasant thought expressed in the speech of the tool. In the third place, we would have this series put artistic craftsmanship before people as furnishing reasonable occupations for those who would gain a livelihood Although within the bounds of academic art, the competition of its kind is so acute that only a very few percent can fairly hope to succeed as painters and sculptors, yet as artistic craftsmen, there is every probability that nearly everyone who would pass through a sufficient period of apprenticeship to workmanship and design would reach a measure of success. In the blending of handwork and thought in such arts as we propose to deal with, happy careers may be found as far removed from the dreary routine of hack labour as from the terrible and uncertainty of academic art. It is desirable in every way that men of good education should be brought back into the productive crafts. There are more than enough of us in the city, and it is probable that more consideration will be given in this century than in the last to design and workmanship. This third volume of our series treats of one branch of the great art of sculpture, one which in the past has been in close association with architecture. It is well, therefore, that besides dealing thoroughly as it does... With the craftsmanship of wood carving, it should also be concerned with the theory of design and with the subject matter which the artist should select to carve. Such considerations should be helpful to all who are interested in the ornamental arts. Indeed, the present book contains some of the best suggestions as to the architectural ornamentation under modern circumstances known to me. Architects cannot forever go on plastering buildings over the trade copies of ancient artistic thinking, and they and the public must someday realise that that it is not mere shapes, but only thoughts, which will make reasonable the enormous labour spent on the decoration of buildings. Mere structure will always justify itself, and architects who cannot obtain living ornamentation will do well to fall back on structure well fitted for its purpose and as finely finished, as may be without carvings and other adornments, it would be better still if architects would make the demand for a more intellectual code of ornament than we have been accustomed to for so long. On the other side of the carver, either in wood or in stone, We want men who will give us their own thought in their own work, as artists, that is, and will not be content to be mere hacks supplying imitations of all styles to order. On the teaching of wood carving, I should like to say a word, as I have watched the course of instruction in many schools It is desirable that classes should be provided with casts and photographs of good examples, such as Mr. Jack speaks of, varying from rough choppings up to minute and exquisite work, but all having the breath of life about them. There should also be a good supply of illustrations and photographs of birds and beasts and flowers, and above all, some branches and buds of real leafage. Then I would set the student of design in wood carving to make variations of such examples. According to his own skill and liking, If he and the teacher could be got to clear their minds of ideas of style and to take some example simply because they liked it and to adapt it just because it amused them, the mystery of design would be nearly solved. Most design will always be the making of one thing like another, with a difference. Later, motives from nature should be brought in, but always with some guidance as to treatment, from an example known to be fine. I would say, for instance, do a panel like this. Only let it be oak foliage instead of vine, and get a thrush or a parrot out of the birdwalk. In regard to the application of carving, I have been oppressed by the accumulation in carving classes of little carved squares and oblongs having no relation to anything that, in an ordinary way, is carved. To carve the humblest real thing, were it but a real toy for a child, would be better than the production of these panels, or of the artificial trivialities which our minds instinctively associate with bazaars, W. R. Letherby, September 1903, Author's Preface To the Reader Be you apprentice or student, or what is still better, both in one, I introduce the following pages to you with this explanation that all theoretical opinions set forth therein are the outcome of many years of patient sifting and balancing of delicate questions, and these have with myself long since passed out of the category of mere opinions into that of settled convictions with regard to the practical matter of technique, it lies very much with yourself to determine the degree of perfection to which you may attain. This depends greatly upon the amount of application which you may be willing or able to devote to its practice. Remember The laws which govern all good art must be known before they can be obeyed. They are subtle but unalterable. The conditions most favorable to your craft must first be understood before these laws can be recognized. There yet remains at your own disposal that devotion of energy which is the first essential step, both in the direction of obtaining clearer views and in conquering technical difficulties. I have to thank the following gentlemen for their assistance in providing photographs for some of the illustrations. G.J. September 1903 Chapter 1 Preamble The study of some form of handicraft has of late years become an important element in the training of an art student. It is with the object of assisting such with practical directions, as well as suggesting to the more practiced carvers... Considerations of design and treatment that the present volume has been written. The art of wood carving, however, lends itself to literary demonstration only in a very limited way, more especially in the condensed form of a textbook which must be looked upon merely as a temporary guide, of use only until such time as practice and study shall have strengthened the judgment of the student, and enabled him to assimilate the many and involved principles which underlie the development of his craft. If the beginner has mastered, to some extent, the initial difficulties of the draftsman, and has a fair general knowledge of the laws of design, but no acquaintance with their application to the art of wood carving, then the two factors which will most immediately affect his progress are his opportunities for practice and his knowledge of past and present conditions of work. No one can become a good carver without considerable practice, constant if the best results are to be looked for. Just as truly, without some knowledge of past and existing conditions of practice, None may hope to escape the danger of becoming, on the one hand, dull imitators of the superficial qualities of old work, or on the other hand, followers of the first will-o'-the-wisp novelty which presents itself to their fancy. If use of the tools and knowledge of materials were the only subjects of which a carver need become master, there would be no equal to the old-fashioned one of apprenticeship to some good craftsman. Daily practice with the tools ensures a manual dexterity with which no amateur need hope to compete. Many traditional expedients are handed down in this way that can be acquired in no other. There is, however, another side of the question to be considered, of quite as much importance as the practical one of his handicraft skill. The art of wood carving has also to fulfill its intellectual function as an interpreter of the dreams and fancies of imagination. In this respect, there is little encouragement to be looked for in the dull routine of a modern workshop. There are, therefore, two widely separated standpoints from which the art may be viewed. It may be looked at from the position of regular craftsman, who regards it primarily as his means of livelihood, or it may be dealt with as a subject of intellectual interest, based upon its relation to the laws of general art. As in the first instance, the use of the tools cannot be learned without some accompanying knowledge of the laws of art. However slight that acquaintance may be, the method of apprenticeship has the advantage of being the more practical of the two, but it must be accepted with all the conditions imposed upon it by the pressure of commercial interest and its usages, conditions which, it may easily be imagined, are far more favourable to the performance of dull task work than to the adventurous spirit of curiosity which should prompt the enterprise of an energetic student. On the other hand, although an independent study of the art offers a wider range of interest. The student is, for that very reason, exposed to the risk of involving himself in a labyrinth of confusing and ineffectual theories. The fact is that neither method can, at the present time, be exclusively depended upon as a means of development, neither can be pronounced complete in itself nor independent of the other. The only sure safeguard against the vagueness of theory is constant practice with the tools. While to the craftsman in the full enjoyment of every means for exercising and increasing his technical skill, a general study and intelligent conception of the wide possibilities of his art is just as essential if it were only as an antidote to the influence of an otherwise mechanical employment, the more closely these contradictory views are made to approximate, the more certain will become the carver's aims, and the clearer will be his understanding of the difficulties which surround his path, enabling him to choose that which is practicable and intrinsically valuable both as regards the theory and practice of his art. If the student, through lack of opportunities for practice, is debarred from all chance of acquiring that expertness which accompanies great technical skill, he may at least find encouragement in the fact that he can never exhaust the interest afforded by his art in its infinite suggestion to the imagination and fancy, and also that by the exercise of diligence and a determination to succeed, he may reasonably hope to gain such a degree of proficiency with the tools as will enable him to execute with his hands every idea which has a definite existence in his mind. Generally speaking, it will be found that his manual powers are always a little in advance of his perceptions Thus the student may gradually work out for himself a natural and reliable manner of expressing his thoughts and in a way too that is likely to compensate for his technical shortcomings by exciting a more lively interest in the resources of the art itself. The measure of his success will be determined partly by his innate capacity for the work and partly by the amount of time which he is enabled to give it its practice. The resources of his art offer an infinite scope for the exercise of his powers of design And as this is the side which lies nearest to his opportunities, it should be the one which receives his most earnest attention, not merely as experiments on paper, but as exercises carried out to the best of his ability with the tools. Such technical difficulties as he may encounter in the process, will gradually disappear with practice. There is also encouragement in the thought that wood carving is an art which makes no immediate calls upon that mysterious combination of extraordinary gifts labelled genius. But it is rather one which demands tribute from the bright and happy inspirations of a normally healthy mind. There is in this direction quite a life's work for any enthusiast who aims at finding the bearings of his own small but precious gift and in making it intelligible to others while at the same time keeping himself free from the many confusions and affections Which surround him in the endeavor. Chapter 2 Tools. We will suppose that the student is anxious to make a practical commencement to his studies. The first consideration will be to procure a set of tools and we propose in this place to describe those which will answer the purposes of a beginner, as well as to look generally at others in common use among craftsmen. The tools used by carvers consist for the most part of chisels and gouges of different shapes and sizes, The number of tools required by professional carvers for one piece of work varies in proportion to the elaborateness of the carving to be done. They may use from half a dozen on simple work up to 20 or 30 for the more intricate carvings, this number being a selection out of a larger stock reaching perhaps as many as a hundred or more. Many of these tools vary only in size and sweep of cutting edge, thus chisels and gouges are to be had ranging from one sixteenth of an inch to 1 inch wide, with curves or sweeps in each size graduated between a semicircle to a curve almost flat. Few carvers, however, possess such a complete stock of tools, as would be represented by one of each size and shape manufactured. Such a thing is not required An average number of, say, 70 tools, will always give a sufficient variety of size and sweep for general purposes. Few pieces of work will require the use of more than half of these in its execution. The beginner, however, need not possess more than from 12 to 24 and may even make a start with fewer. It is a good plan to learn the uses of a few tools before acquiring a complete set, as by this means, when difficulties are felt in the execution of work, a tool of known description is sought for and purchased with a foreknowledge of its advantages. This is the surest way to gain a distinct knowledge of the varieties of each tool and their application to the different purposes of design. The following list of tools will be found sufficient for all the occasions of study, beginning by the purchase of the first section, numbers 1 to 17, and adding others one by one until a set is made up of 24 tools. The tools should be selected as near the sizes and shapes shown in the illustration as possible. The curved and straight strokes represent the shape of the actual cuts made by pressing the tools down perpendicularly into a piece of wood. This, in the case of gouges, is generally called the sweep. Numbers 1, 2 and 3 are gouges of sweeps varying from one almost flat to a distinct hollow in number 3. These tools are made in two forms, straight-sided and spade-shaped. An illustration of the spade form is given on the second page of the tools. In purchasing his set of tools, the student should order numbers 1, 2, 3, 10, 11 in this form. They will be found to have many advantages as they conceal less of the wood behind them and get well into corners inaccessible to straight-sided tools. They are lighter and more easily sharpened, and are very necessary in finishing the surface of work, and in shaping out foliage, and more especially such as is undercut. Numbers 5, 6 and 7 are straight gouges graduated in size and sweep. Number 8 is called a veiner because it is often used for making the grooves which represent veins in leaves. It is a narrow but deep gouge and is used for any narrow grooves which may be required and for outlining the drawing at starting The number 9 is called a V-tool, or parting tool, on account of its shape. It is used for making grooves with straight sides and sharp inner angles at the bottom. It can be used for various purposes, such as undercutting, clearing out sharply defined angles outlining the drawing, etc. and etc. It should be got with a square cutting edge, not bevelled off as some are made. Numbers 10, 11, 12 are flat chisels, or, as they are sometimes called, firmers. Numbers 10 and 11 should be in spade shape. Number 13 is also a flat chisel, but it is beveled off to a point, and it is called a corner chisel. It is used for getting into the difficult corners, and is a most useful tool when used as a knife for delicate edges or curves. Numbers 14 and 16 are what are known as bent chisels. They are used principally for levelling the ground or background and are therefore also called grounders. These tools are made with various curves or bends in their length. These tools will make up a very useful set for the beginner and should serve him for a long time. Or at least until he really begins to feel the want of others, then he may get the remaining tools that he needs. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you are feeling drowsy. I look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Good night.